when a photograph, a video, a joke or a story is shared and quickly spreads over the internet or through cell phone users, it is said to go viral, observed journalist Michael Martyr this past week. And until recently, I must say, going going viral and attracting as many eyeballs as possible was something people strived for, wasn't it? You remember that viral video of a dad putting a mic on his four-year-old during hockey practice? The mic caught that boy wearing hockey pads saying, one, two, one, two, as he learned to skate on both feet and then exhausted, still on the ice, that four-year-old boy also said, I want a nap. There are those videos of, of turtles opening screen doors, which I strangely find captivating. Of course, there are those dog and cat videos, in particular those charming ones where we watch dogs and cats playing together as if they are best friends. But over the last few weeks, another understanding of going viral has slowly gripped our world. Many of us now, I suspect, instead of watching videos, are watching the news or reading a newspaper or scrolling through Facebook, trying to understand what is going on and how that might affect us and those we love near and far. Perhaps you've even come across the the photograph of the coronavirus that you'll find on your bulletin cover this morning. And this week, as, as I studied that photo, the name corona coming from the crown you see around those round cells, I thought it was actually strangely beautiful, similar to a Vasily Kandinsky painting you might find on the floor of a modern art museum. But of course, that photo also renders something that is anything but what we admire, as it is causing suffering and, and, and anguish around our world. In other words, something going viral, an actual virus going viral, suddenly has new meaning. Which raises the question, how do we make sense of this reality, especially as, as people of faith? Last Sunday, we began our Lenten series, Seven Stations to Resurrection, and we are following Jesus to Jerusalem in the Gospel of Luke. In chapter 9, Jesus turns his face to Jerusalem, and in the coming chapters encounters people and, and situations that, that grant insight, that grant illumination into the spiritual life, and what it means for us to call ourselves a disciple of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday, our first station, station is an old Christian word that means to, to stop and to reflect. That station was mortality. And our souls were inspired by our choir's offering of Gabriel Fauré's Requiem. And as that composer phrased it, we were reminded that our faith, faith resides in, in the reality of what he called eternal rest. Our second station is healing, and as we turn to the 18th chapter of Luke's Gospel, we read, as Jesus was approaching Jericho, a, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. 
No doubt all of us have, have walked by city streets and, and come across that situation. Before us is a human being sometimes in a prostate position of prayer, maybe with sunglasses on or, or even damaged eyes and clear view with a, with a paper cup in front and sometimes in which we can see a few crumpled dollar bills or, or coins. In our passage, Jesus is traveling with a crowd that is by now maybe 25, 50, 100 people. They're all watching him closely, waiting for the next miracle or the next teaching. And when that crowd walks by the blind beggar, as, as most of us do, they ignore the suffering in their midst. They are blind, we might say, to, to those in need. And the beggar asks those around him what is happening, and they say Jesus of Nazareth is walking by. This week, while studying that, that photograph on our bulletin cover, I started to reflect on our human ability to notice life and to see. To see is essentially a gift provided to us by, by photons, these infinitesimally small particles or waves that, that have absolutely no color at all, but as they reflect off sanctuary walls as they reflect off red and yellow flowers peeping out of our gardens, as they reflect off the face of a loved one, as they enter our eyes, and our eyes send, as as Bill Bryson writes in his new book, Body, a Guide for Occupants, a hundred billion signals to the brain every second. But when we see something only about 10% of the, the information comes from our, our optic nerve. Other parts of our brain have to deconstruct the signals to recognize a faith, interpret movement, identify danger. In other words, the biggest part of seeing isn't receiving visual images, writes Bryson. It's making sense of them. As you know, Annie Dillard is one of my favorite commentators on how and where to find glimpses of God in our midst. In her Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she points the reader to studies that describe what happens when someone actually sees for the first time, in particular after an operation, and how they attempt to make sense of what they are in fact seeing. With open eyes, Dillard writes how those who are blind from birth, when they, when they have their vision restored, for example, have no conception of, of height or distance. A house that is a mile away is thought of as nearby. The newly sighted also apparently see the world as, as color patches. For example, a 22-year-old girl who recovered her sight, it was reported, was so dazzled by the world's brightness that, that she shut her eyes for two weeks. When at the end of that time she opened her eyes again, the more she directed her gaze upon everything around her, an expression of astonishment covered her features. And she exclaimed, Oh God, how beautiful. 
In our chapel this morning, you'll find seven stations that align with the biblical text we are considering in our series. Last Sunday, we heard Jesus say he will be killed and on the third day rise again. And I invite you to to stop in our chapel to, to see a piece by Hope College professor Greg Lookers, who asked us to consider our, our own mortality through the metaphor of a maze. This morning you'll find a dazzling landscape by painter Jeff Condon that when I saw it for the first time nudged me to imagine how someone like that 22-year-old girl suddenly granted the ability to see might in fact see the world through color patches, as Diller describes. The blind beggar calls out, Jesus, have mercy on me. And those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and ordered the man be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. And I wonder what that blind beggar's eyes saw the moment he was given sight. Was it color patches? Did what his eyes gaze upon and his mind attempt to process look like Jeff Congdon's painting in our chapel this morning? Did a look of astonishment spread over his features and did he say, Oh God, how beautiful. While studying that photograph on our bulletin this week, suddenly occurred to me in many ways I was like that blind beggar. As I gazed at that photograph, I too was gazing at color patches with no deeper understanding of what I was looking at. Because while I understood when a, when a, a video goes viral, it whips around our planet spreading on the Internet, I was not sure what a real virus was. You know, this week I learned that a virus, as Bill Bryson writes, is not quite living, but by no means dead. Outside living cells, they're just inert things. They, they don't eat, they don't breathe, they don't do much of anything. They have no means of locomotion. They don't propel themselves. They hitchhike. Most of the time they are as lifeless as a, as a mode of dust. But put them in a living cell and they will reproduce as furiously as any living thing. And out of the hundreds of thousands of viruses, there are only 263 that affect human beings. And viruses are really, really, really small about the size of one nine-hundredth of the width of a human hair. And how do we see something that small? As one website explains, 
That photo on our bulletin is the result of a of electron mode, uh, microscope using using a beam of accelerated electrons as as a source of illumination, as the wavelength of an electron can be up to a hundred thousand times shorter than that of a photon. An electron microscope enables us to see. The human eye, in other words, can see and process the world around it due to photons. But an electron microscope reveals the smallest of things on our planet. It's all there, but we just can't see it. It's a part of our planet. It's an aspect of creation. But we're blind to its existence. Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, he said, I want to see. Jesus said, receive your sight, your faith. It's healed you. And it's interesting how the Greek word that Jesus utters in this passage, translated as faith, the Greek word is pistis, which can also mean to to persuade. In other words, what Jesus is saying to this blind beggar is your persuasiveness has prompted me to heal you. As one scholar phrases it, Jesus' usage of this word lends itself to understanding the the faith of the blind beggar as a form of divine persuasion. Meaning Jesus perceived in this man such a compelling yearning to see the world, it, it persuaded him, it convinced him to perform a miracle. Now, I'm not sure why some miracles occur, and others clearly don't. Why, in some situation, God appears to be persuaded to heal someone, and in other moments is seemingly reluctant to intervene. And in the New Testament, we read again and again of times when when Jesus heals people from diseases such as, as leprosy to a fever. To paralysis. But what is apparently central in our passage, outside of this miracle, is the blind beggar exhibits this intense desire to want to see. Lord, he says, I want to see. That's his divine persuasion. And this week, I thought perhaps that is what this second station of healing offers us. The insight that, that like the blind beggar, we can also ask Jesus for this gift of sight. That as people of faith, we can ask Jesus for the, for the majesty and, and the mystery and even the danger of all of creation to come into focus by photons and by electrons. Because these are difficult times, are they not? These are uncertain times. Uh, We wonder what's next. 
if events in the coming days and weeks will get worse. And it might be tempting in the light of what we see around us to just close our eyes, to to shut ourselves off from the increasing turbulence of life. But the blind beggar models what it looks like to actually muster up faith that despite the hardships, despite the setbacks, seeks to be engaged in our world with all the divine persuasiveness that we can muster. The kind of pistis that believes in healing. The kind of faith that believes in miracles. The kind of faith that trusts whenever our eyes are open. Like that blind beggar. What comes next is with our eyes open, we will want to follow Jesus. And we will praise God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.